This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We all understand the role that computers play in the decision processes of many companies these days. The reliance on algorithms is designed to take away any bias that might come forward from humans. But remember, it's humans that put together these algorithms. And according to a new book by political science professor Virginia Eubanks, many of these decisions end up impacting the poor more so than any other group of people. Virginia is an associate professor of political science at the University of Albany, and she is also the author of the book automating inequality how high-tech tools profile police and punish the pure or the poor excuse me and it's a pleasure to have virginia joining us here on the show today virginia welcome thank you so much for having me i'm excited to be here thank you um i think that there's a belief that that all algorithms are made with no bias i, I it seems like you're you're dispelling that uh, that myth to a degree yeah, so I think often that we believe that our sort of digital decision-making tools, like algorithms or artificial intelligence or integrated databases or whatever you want to talk about, I think we feel like they're more objective and more neutral than human beings. Um, but we actually, one of the arguments I make in automating inequality is that we're smuggling sort of moral and political assumptions into them about who should share, specifically in American prosperity. And, and so, I can give you an example if you'd like. Yeah, please. So I write in the book about three different systems. Um, one is an attempt to automate all of the eligibility processes for the state of Indiana in 2006. The second is um, electronic registry of the unhoused in Los Angeles in 2013. And the third is um, a predictive model that's supposed to be able to forecast which children will be victims of abuse or neglect in the future in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, which well, is where Pittsburgh is. Let me let me get into the, to the last two specifically because I wanted to mention them anyway. The Los Angeles one I find is interesting because you're talking about low-income housing, and part of this is is a scored system, and. What I found was incredible is the fact that if you were in jail or in prison, that's considered to be housing, and your score can actually be lowered in these in these types of situations. Yeah, so the story I tell in Los Angeles is about this system that's called the Coordinated Entry System, and it was billed as the Match.com of homeless services. And there's some really great intentions behind this and some really smart people working on it. So the intention is to match the most vulnerable unhoused people. There are 58,000 unhoused people in Los Angeles. It's the second highest in the country. And 75% of those people are completely unsheltered. So this is a, a, a huge humanitarian crisis. And so it makes sense that people are really trying to work hard to figure out how to get the people most in need help as fast as they can. But one of the things that's really troubling about this system is that it asks these incredibly invasive and sometimes even incriminating questions about people's behavior to put them on this moral spectrum from most vulnerable to least vulnerable. So it asks questions like, um, are you having unprotected sex? Are you running drugs for money? Um, is there an open warrant on you? Um, have you thought about harming yourself or others? And then the responses to that survey are available to 168 different agencies across Los Angeles County. And some of the information is even available to the Los Angeles Police Department based just on an oral request. 
So no warrant process, hmm. no written request, just an oral request. So the folks who are unhoused who are taking this survey, folks like Gary Boatwright, who I write about in the book, really feel like they've been asked to criminalize themselves yeah. in exchange for like a slightly better lottery number for housing. And then when they don't get resources, it leaves them open because so many of there's just the day-to-day activities of being unhoused, like having a place to put your stuff and having a place to go to the bathroom and like drinking a beer, like all those things when you're in public are illegal. Um, so just the fact of, of staying out on the streets longer puts you at a really high risk for ending up in prison. And then the algorithm scores you lower because prison counts as housing. Uh, tell us about uh, the, the instance uh, with the Pittsburgh area, with uh, Allegheny County. Yeah, so in Allegheny County, I look at a system that's called the Allegheny Family Screening Tool, or the AFST. Um, and that tool is basically a statistical regression um, that was run against a big warehouse, a data warehouse that the county has kept since 1999. There's a billion records in this warehouse, 800 for every resident in Allegheny County. Um, so a team of economists and social scientists sort of built this model based on the information that's in that data warehouse that is supposed to be able to um, rate the children who are called on um, to the abuse and neglect hotline in terms of the danger of them being abused or neglected in the future. Um, and so this tool is supposed to help human intake caseworkers make better decisions about which calls and which reports they should screen in for investigation. Um, But there are some things about this tool that are a little troubling um, as well. Um, You know, I'll say first that I think often this tool confuses parenting while poor Mm -hmm. with poor parenting, because it only has access to data about um, families that have received public resources. So the kinds of harms that might be happening to middle-class children aren't represented in the database. And the, uh, the fact of being risk-rated really highly sort of keeps you pulled into this feedback cycle of more surveillance, so more data, so a higher score. Um, that can really make families feel like there's on, they're on a knife's edge, like reaching out for any kind of um, public resource yeah. might mean that they're rated more highly for potential abuse, or even that their children will be rated more highly for potential abuse when they become parents themselves. Well, I I find it interesting. You're talking about, in the examples that you give, uh, you're talking about a, a, a sector of people that probably are going to be impacted in general by a lot of these issues. And then it's almost like it's a piling on, on top of it, when you're talking about in the case of Los Angeles, trying to get, you know, housing, you know, the other instances that you give right now, it, it, it really is multiplying the problem, isn't it? Well, I'll say that the, the families that I spoke to, many of the families that I spoke to certainly feel that way, right? That they feel like they've been single. And we may have lost Virginia. Uh, Virginia, you there? systems because they live in neighborhoods where um, there aren't there's not a real expectation that their rights will be protected Virginia uh, we lost you for a second I'm gonna have you go back and start that answer again okay um, so I was saying that from the point of view of the families who are the targets of these systems it certainly feels like a piling on it feels like they're under the microscope 
it feels to them like they have been singled out for extra scrutiny and surveillance that leaves them in really dangerous situations or diverts them from getting the resources they need to keep their families safe. But I think one of the things that's really, really interesting is this one of the origin points for this book is a conversation I had way back in 2000 with a young mom, mom who was on public assistance and who said really directly to me, and I think very generously, she said, you know, you all, meaning professional middle class people, you all should pay attention to what's happening to us because they're coming for you next. And I think one of the mm. lessons that folks who are not currently poor and working class um, people should take from this book is that after 50 years of sort of digital experiments in public services in places where there's a low expectation that your rights will be respected, the architects of these systems are now really aiming for middle class entitlement programs. So Social Security, disability, unemployment, Medicare. So if you look at the Trump administration's budget proposal, they actually suggest that they can save $189 billion in these programs over the next 10 years by um, reducing improper payments and improving program uh, integrity. And what that means is collecting and sharing more data, including right. buying data from commercial data brokers um, and spreading these kinds of systems um, way beyond just the public service systems that they're in now. So are, are a lot of these agencies uh, relying on the, the algorithm method maybe too much? Well, I think we might be seeing um, the beginning of the end of what I think of as like the Wild West period of big data. So I think until now, most folks who are designing these systems have felt like they can collect anything they want, use it however they want, and keep it for as long as they want. Mm -hmm. um, and what I'm hearing in communities, um, particularly marginalized communities that are really deeply impacted by these systems, is that people are not going to stand for that anymore that people have real concerns around uh, informed consent. People have real concerns about how their data is being shared, whether it's legal and whether it's morally right, um, and uh, that, that they're developing self-defense mechanisms and, and, and strategies around these systems. So when I talk to data scientists, I often say, you know, like, it's time to adjust. Like, we've had this remarkably open field for a long time, but I do believe that that moment is ending. In terms of the bias, though, uh, surrounding the poor, I mean, you're obviously talking about it more in the digital age now, but, but historically that has been more the norm, correct? Yeah, so that's one of the major points of the book, right? So I talk about, I talk about this stuff as building a digital poorhouse. Right. Um, and I, I use that metaphor really specifically because I actually think that these systems, um, although we talk about them often as like disruptors, they are really more intensifiers and amplifiers right. of processes that have, all, have been with us for a long time, at least since the 1800s. Um, but the thing that is hopeful, the thing that's optimistic, I think, about the book and about the situation we find ourselves in is that they make these um, problems so concrete and so visible um, that they really call us to a moral reckoning to do better. So that was kind of going to be my next question to you. Is there is there kind of a light at the end of the tunnel that you see uh, because of the fact that seemingly we are in more and more of a digital age anyway, and it doesn't seem like that is going to slow down at any point here in, in the near future? Yeah, so I um, talk in the book about 
the sort of deep cultural and political changes that we need to, to think through in order to get to better systems. But I also, after working on this, this stuff for close to 10 years, um, I do have some like sort of big picture things to consider that might, might, might fall in the category of solutions. Um, so one is I, I really believe we need to stop using these systems to avoid some of the most pressing moral and political dilemmas mm-hmm. of our time. Right. And that really is racism and poverty. Right. Um, so my great fear with these systems is we're actually using them as a kind of empathy override meaning that we are struggling with questions that are almost impossible for human beings to make. Like in Los Angeles, there's 58,000 unhoused people and just a handful of resources. I don't want to be the caseworker making that decision. (laughs) Right, right. But I also don't want us to outsource that decision to a machine so we can avoid its human costs. And that's one of my great fears about these systems. So then what do you think is the solution to that specific example yourself? Because that is something that will play out, I think, in a majority of U.S. cities right now where you don't have the resources, you don't have uh, the personnel to be able to handle these types of decisions. Yeah. So one of the things I want to make, I can talk specifically about housing, but one of the things I make really clear in the book is all of the creators of these systems talk to me about them as kinds of triage. So they say, you know, we have this incredible, overwhelming need. Uh, We don't have enough resources. And so we have to use these systems to make these incredibly difficult decisions. But that idea that we have to triage, that there's not enough for everyone, and that we have to ration resources, that's a political decision. That's what I mean when I say we're using these technologies to avoid important political decisions. In other places in the world, the conditions that unhoused folks in Los Angeles live in is considered a human rights violation. And here we're talking about it as if it's a systems engineering problem. Uh, Tell us about your example in Indiana. So in Indiana, um, in 2006, the governor uh, signed a $1.4 billion contract with a a collection of high-tech companies, including IBM and Affiliated Computer Systems, ACS, to um, automate all of the state's eligibility processes for the welfare programs. And how they did that was by um, replacing local caseworkers with online forms and regional call centers. Mm -hmm. And what that meant is um, folks no longer had a relationship with a local caseworker who was responsible for their case or responsible for their family. So when they were thrown back on trying to fill out these actually really complicated and very long forms um, by themselves with very little help, um, most or many of them, a million folks, were denied benefits for the reason um, failure to cooperate in establishing eligibility. And that just meant they had made a mistake somewhere on the form, or the state had made a mistake, or the private contractor had made a mistake. Um, But they didn't have any help to figure out what that what that mistake was. So millions of people like Omega Young and Lindsay Kidwell and Sophie Stipes, all folks I write about in the book, suffered unnecessarily. And the project was such a a catastrophe that the governor actually canceled the contract three years into a 10-year contract and then was sued for breach of contract by IBM. Um, And in the first round, IBM won and was um, awarded an additional $50 million on top of the $437 million 
that they had already collected. Well, I, I find it interesting. Obviously, in all, in all of these situations, we're talking about uh, things that are affecting people. And as you said, with the with the case in Indiana, uh, there are situations where people did nothing wrong, yet they still were impacted negatively by this. And playing off of something you just said, the potential repercussions of, of following this type of a pattern you know 100% of the time when you make mistakes is being sued because of the fact that somebody has been hurt by this and they didn't deserve to be hurt by it yeah i'm not sure we'll ever know the full cost of that experiment right yeah. obviously the heaviest burden of that cost fell on poor and working families who weren't able to get the resources they needed and people died it was really horrific um but there was also a, a larger cost to the to the taxpayers of the state. Um, this case is still in litigation. It still hasn't been settled, right, like 12 years after the beginning of this experiment. Um, but, but I think it's really important to understand that, like, most people, when they are told that they're uh, ineligible for these programs, will not try again. So Lindsay Kidwell is one of the folks I spoke to for the book. Um, she got kicked off during the automation, kicked off Medicaid during the uh, automation, very courageously stood up for herself, managed to get her um, benefits back, went through a better period of time and got off benefits entirely. And when I was talking to her just before the book came out, she said she had been through a divorce recently and was probably eligible for services again, mm -hmm. but there was no way she was going to apply because the whole process was so horrible that she will do anything in yeah. the world except for apply again. So we're really blocking people from resources they are entitled to by law and that they need to keep themselves and their families safe and healthy. And that is not who we are as a country. But you mentioned, we got about a minute left, you mentioned that obviously a lot of what you focus on is the impact on the poor, but you alluded to a little bit ago the fact that this has the potential down the road of impacting more of the middle class as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think that these tools get tested in places where there's already an expectation that folks will be forced to trade one of their human rights, like their information or their privacy, for another human right, like food or housing, right? So they're tested in low rights environments. Um, but once they're tested there, they come for everyone. Great having you with us today, Virginia. All the best with the book. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. The book is Automating Inequality. Virginia Eubanks is the author. Uh, she is at the University of Albany. Uh, really interesting book and obviously some uh, some very uh, real-world possible problems uh, that we're looking at now and could be looking at in the future. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.